0: He has this uh, stupid expression, better than a sweater. Do you guys have that expression here? It's better than a sweater. I didn't think so. I I think he just made it up. It's his own twisted, strange little thing, and he just uses it everywhere he goes. And there I was blaming people in Texas for his mental illness. (laughs) But it's not the people in Texas. It's him that's crazy. Good. That's good to know. There's uh, tapes, tape series out on the table, outside the door, and an order form. If you see a tape series that you like the sound of, you feel free to order that. They're all good. They'll change your wife. I mean, they'll change your life. (laughs) (laughs) They'll change your spouse. (laughs) Okay, we're going to start on a whole different word tonight. The last two times we've looked at stillness, now we're going to look at another word, Waiting. Let's say you get serious about this devotional prayer life with the Lord. You begin to spend time with Him. You uh, learn to be still. And that's really true. You learn to be still. Some people, stillness comes naturally. They're sort of contemplatives by nature. They can just sit down and find a place of interior stillness, stillness of heart, stillness of mind. Bang, before you know it. That's right, Steve. Before you know it, they're in la-la land sitting on the Lord's lap, and it's wonderful. Uh, that's a small percentage of the population. And uh, given the life that we lead and the pace at which we lead it, even those people that do that naturally don't do it a lot because they're so busy. Busyness being one of the great enemies of, of, a, of a devotional life with God. For the rest of us, stillness doesn't come easily. It's, it's an acquired taste. At first it's awkward. At first it's difficult. When I was first learning to pray, this uh, this Catholic nun, might as well get it out of the bag, Catholic nun taught me to pray and uh, spent a year and a half, at, she was my spiritual director and, and she would teach me a lot of the things I'm going to teach you tomorrow night. How do you begin a prayer life? How do you be still? Uh, the five Ps of prayer it's called. And, and I was trying so hard to do this and, and I would discover that I would do everything she said to do, and I would sit still for an hour every morning. That seemed like an eternity. It was absolutely horrible, learning to be still, sit still for an hour. Not just sit still, but be quiet. Not just be quiet, but still my heart. And sometimes I would spend 55 minutes trying to be still in in a state of frustration. And then for the last five minutes, or maybe and I'm not exaggerating, maybe two minutes of, of my prayer time in the beginning, I would reach a place of spiritual rest. I would reach a place where I was aware and conscious of God's presence there with me and I would be communing with Him. I would be in, in contact, experiential, real contact with Him. And that would be two minutes out of an hour. And I would go back to her and I would say, this is a complete waste of time. I'm not learning anything. And she would say, well, what happened? And I would say, well, it took me 57 minutes to get to a place where I was still inside and and where I could actually honestly say that I sensed God's presence. And she'd get all excited. And she'd say, this is wonderful. You were in his presence for two minutes. And I'd look at her and I'd say, you've got to be crazy. I'm doing all of this for two minutes? And she would say, yes, you're doing this for two minutes, but the two minutes is going to grow. It'll become five minutes and it'll become ten minutes. And gradually, you will find a place of peace with God and rest with God. And that rest, that effect of being with the Lord will slowly go out and start to change your life. And I said, how can I tell when it's changing my life? And she said, well, it'll affect the way you drive your car. She said, it'll affect the way you open and close doors. It'll affect the way you put things away in the cupboard. And I'm thinking, she's crazy. What have I fallen into here? What I discovered was, she was right. When you have a place of peace in your life, when you have a place where you are routinely encountering God and being with Him, that peace and that rest begins to affect your personality. You find you're more gentle than you were before. You find you're more patient than you were before. You find you don't get so angry on the freeway. You're not shouting at other drivers like you used to. You find that you're treating your wife better. You find that you're treating your friends better. You're treating your secretary better. You don't know why exactly you didn't set out to be a better person. You didn't set six goals this week. Don't yell at other drivers. Don't speed. Don't slam on the brakes. Don't throw things around when you're putting stuff away. Do be gentle. It's not like you set a list of how you ought to be. It's that something is happening inside you in this place of peace with God. And that is affecting the way you're living your life. And it's really neat. When it first started... And I began, after several months of learning to pray and be still and communing with the Lord, abiding with the Lord, I started to notice these changes, and other people started to notice these changes. You know, you're, you're so much gentler. You're so much nicer to be around. You, you don't lose your temper as often. And they're listing all these wonderful saintly qualities. And, and I thought, oh, I'm really becoming Christ-like. This is wonderful. And I started to get proud. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Look at how spiritual I am. And then I went on a sailing vacation with my sister and her husband and my wife and my brother and sister. So there was six of us on this 36-foot boat for a week. I didn't have my quiet time for a week. First day, I was gentle and sweet and Christ-like and nice to be with. Second day, I was sweet and gentle and Christ-like and nice to be with about half the time. Third day, I was me again. About the fourth day, my sister came to me and said, What's happening to you? And I said, What do you mean? And she said, Well, when we started this trip on Monday morning, you were a really nice person. Now it's Wednesday or now it's Thursday morning. You're not nice anymore. What's happened to you? She asked me that. And I thought, Well, what's the difference? Oh, I haven't had my quiet time this week. I haven't been with the Lord. You know what I discovered? All these wonderful changes, they weren't permanent. There's the tragic news, folks. You're going to be dependent on Him for goodness till the day you die. You are not a camel. You cannot fill your stomach with righteousness on a Sunday and make it last till next Sunday. You are a leaking cup. You are a cup with holes drilled all through the sides and the bottom. You can fill it up all you want, but as you take the cup away from the tap, it begins to lose water. Within a day, honestly... Within a day, because this is the way God designed it. He designed this to work daily. Within a day, the cup is almost empty. You don't have as much to give anymore. You know, your righteousness isn't your righteousness. I found out that prayer doesn't make you a better person. It keeps you a better person as long as you're praying because it's Him that's doing it. But when you stop putting the cup under the tap, the cup cup goes empty real fast. You're still tipping it trying to pour water on needy, dry places, but there's no water to pour. It's a, it's a dependency. I discovered the hard way. If I don't have my time with him, <laughs> oh, it, was this, it was this year, in, Decemb- in December, he told me, stop watching television for a month to stop watching television for a month. That was not good news. This is the end of December. We're going into the playoffs. Do you understand? The NFL playoffs. What I have waited one year for. So I said to the Lord, I said, okay, I'll fast television for 30 days, and I'll start the day after the Super Bowl. I figured, that's not asking too much. I mean, he's my loving father. So, I did not do what he said in December. I watched all my TV that I love to watch, my home and garden channel, and, and, and my football. What a strange mix between the masculine and feminine sides of your character, interior decorating, landscapers challenge, and guys trying to kill each other. We had the whole... TV was ministering to the whole person. So, so, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't do what the Lord said. I didn't fast it like he said. I just powered on through. February the 1st, we'd been through all sorts of stress in the month, month of January and part of December really bad. In early February, and I'd done a bunch of ministry trips. I was really strung out and really tired, and my nerves were shot. And I'm sitting in the living room. This is the truth. I'm not ashamed to say this, I'm sitting in the living room on a Monday or Tuesday afternoon and I'm just almost physically shaking and I'm falling apart emotionally and I start crying. And I said, God, I just can't take this, I'm just a mess, I'm just a mess. What's happened to me? I'm so tired and strung out and my nerves are shot and I'm falling apart. And you know what he said to me? And there was not a there was not a shred of condemnation in this. He just asked me a question. And I mean, I, you got to understand how gracious this was. He wasn't being hard on me. He just asked me a question. He said, because uh, I here I am asking him all these questions about why I'm such a mess and I'm just falling apart and I'm crying. I'm literally crying. And I'm not even sure why. And he says to me, Do you think you'd be feeling like this if you'd Stop stopped watching television when I told you to in late December. And I said, you're right. I got myself into this mess. And you you saw in advance and you tried to fix it. I didn't listen. I said, I start today. Now I start. And within three days, the peace was all coming back. I'm not against television. I love television. I love my landscape shows and my football and I love American Chopper. It's my favorite show. Never miss American Chopper. Just I love the dynamics, I love the I love the whole thing about it, the artistic stuff, the anger, the everything. It's just so good. And it's t- being taped now. It's being taped right now. My machine just went off. Right? It just right now. It's going off right now. I'm catching Mikey and Folly and Vinny. and I love those guys. See, I'm not knocking it, but you've got to understand that you you can't let things get in the way of your relationship with God or you're going to pay for it in some way. You're going to pay for it emotionally or psychologically or relationally with your family or at your work or whatever. You're going to pay for it. You're not camels. You can't run that way. You, You drink daily the manna from heaven fell daily and they went out and collected it. And when they tried to collect more than enough for today, it rotted and turned to garbage in their hands. Hello? I am the bread from heaven? I am the bread from heaven, not that? He's saying, I'm just like that. That was an Old Testament type. It was a picture of the Christ to come. The way they collected their bread daily was the way we're supposed to... Lord, give us today my daily bread. What's He saying? Give me today the portion I need of You. Give me today what I need of You. It's daily. And if you don't eat daily, you're going to get sick. So listen, it's a dependency. He's designed it that way. You're not turning into wonderful people you're just staying under the tap take you away from the tap you're not wonderful anymore you got it okay so let's say you're serious about this and you and you really carve out time to be alone with him and to learn to be still what you generally find fairly quickly is most people a state of being with him that is wonderful a sense of peace Sense of rest. It's a funny thing. It's a, I don't know how to describe it, but I'll be stilling my heart and I'll be quiet and sitting, usually in the backyard. And at some point, all of a sudden, things kind of change, and I sense His presence in the yard. It's really cool, and things look a. And this sounds really weird, but things look a little different. There's just just this edge of, yeah, you're here. You're here. I know you're here. It's not overwhelming. It's not like those meetings sometimes when the Spirit comes in power and you're knocked on the floor and you lie there and it's just you know you feel power coming into your body. It's not like that. It's much more gentle and much more subtle, but it's really wonderful. And the prayer writers in the uh, ever since the early days of the church, all through church history for the last two thousand years. There has been traditions and, and groups of Christians that have pursued an intimate relationship with God. And they all call it the same thing. They describe it uh, with different words, but it's all the same thing. It comes down to a word called consolation. God is consoling you. God is touching you. God is loving you. God is filling you. God is present for you. He's healing your jangled nerves and your torn up emotions. And it is, it is like uh, when the rains come on dry ground. You had a drought and the rains come and everything begins to grow again. Green sprouts start coming up and everything's good. And you're thinking, this, this is fantastic. This is what I got into this for. This feeling, this presence, this relationship, this warmth and enfolding and love and nurture, this is what I got into this for. It's the payoff. It's the carrot. And it's happening to you. And you're thrilled by it. And you think, this is the way it's supposed to be. This will never end. And a week later, it ends. A week later, you've had this time with the Lord that is so rich, you foolishly assume it's automatic. You... You assume that now you've achieved a certain place and it's just going to keep on going like that till the day you die and you're on cruise and the car is just working perfectly and you're heading towards your destination and it's the road trip from heaven. That's the way you think it is. That's the way you think it's going to be. And about a week later or two weeks later or a month or two months or three months, for me it was about three months, one day you sit down to, quote, do your prayers, to be with Him and you sit like you sat the day before and you look at the same passage you looked at the day before and you remember the same things as the day before and the weather hasn't changed and the room hasn't changed and the furniture's all in the same place and you're expecting fill me up cuddle me love me do what you do best God I'm here everything's fine get get after it God you're a little late you must be in China working on your revival. Well, I can wait. I'll give you another five minutes. Well, there's a lot of sinful people in Canada. You're probably doing al- alphabetically. You did Africa, A, B, Botswana, now you're working on Canada. Well, you'll get to me soon. But he doesn't. Nothing. Nothing. You start to panic. You think, what's the first thing you think? What did I do? You guys are very bright what have I done
1: wrong? I'm
0: like, what have I done wrong? There's sin in my life. There's sin in my life. There's sin in my life. Okay. And that's always easy. As soon as you say there's sin in your life, you have an executive assistant whose name is Satan, and he starts to help you find it. And of course, there's always tons. No matter how wonderful you've been in the Spirit, no matter how full of His love, you barked at somebody. You didn't forgive somebody, and you weren't perfect with your wife. So right away, you know, press enter, up on the screen pops a chronological sins of your Th- those sins today, this morning, just your dirty old mental life when you got up. So right away you think, oh yeah, that's it, that's it. It's my sin that's in the way. I've screwed it up. Okay, ah, confess, confess, confess. A little self hate, little self hate. Get a lot of self hate going. That's always good for you. You know, a little shame. Bring on the shame. Okay, feel better. Repented. Come on, Lord, come on. I'm here for you. Do it. Nothing. I know. Not enough self-hate. Think of the sin before you were a Christian. Think of the sin before you were a Christian. There's always tons. There's always tons. Oh, 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 oh. It's like being beat up. Oh, I'm so ashamed. Ah! And you work yourself into a real frenzy. That ought to do it. Now you've pleased Him. Now you've paid for the visit. Visit me. But He doesn't. There's nothing. Emptiness. Dead air. Nothing. No consolation. No presence. No nothing. What's the next thing you do? (laughs) <laughs> well I did that and that gets lame pretty soon you know after, after a few days of that you realize that I'm no worse a sinner than I was when he was being good to me this is really bothering me then what do you do blame your wife don't you know anything it's the old sin in the camp you know one of the kids has done something wrong somebody's got a playboy in the house somewhere my wife's been watching too much Home and Garden. She's not spiritual, or he's not. You know, whatever. Blame your spouse. So you, you go through all of that, and you blame your spouse and the kids, but that wasn't it either. You figure out they're no worse than they were the day before yesterday. They're bad, but not that bad. Oh, I know. The devil. Yes, of course. There's a curse on my house. An evil tent from hell has descended and covered my home. There's a barrier, a shield. It's kind of gray and ugly. It's quite dark and it kind of shakes sometimes. And the devil's holding it in place with a whole bunch of demons. They look like the Dallas Cowboys, but I know they're really... Wait a minute, they are the Dallas Cowboys. It's Jimmy Jones! It's Jimmy Jones! He's sitting on my house. So you cast everything off and you go through some spiritual warfare and you feel really good about that and you're sure that's going to do it because it was the devil! It has to be. And of course, that doesn't work. It wasn't the Dallas Cowboys. It was the New England
1: Patriots.
0: (laughs) So then you realize that isn't going to work. And then, who do you blame next? Come on. You blame God next. This is your fault. Why have you forgotten me? What's wrong with you, Lord? Where are you? Come on. Get down here. What kind of God are you? I mean, I sought you. I put time aside for you. I read my Bible. I gave up Monday night. Well, I didn't give up Monday football, of course, but I mean, I gave up some stuff. This is your fault. Dead air. And you realize that's not going to work. Then what do you do? You quit. That's what Christians do. You quit. You say, well, this prayer isn't for me. I understand it's for some people, and it was good for a little while, but it's not working like it used to. So the right thing to do at this point is just to stop. And it's at this point that most people's prayer life stops. It's over. They're not going to pick it up. You're not going to do it again. I tried it. It didn't work. Any hands want to go up at this point? Okay. What was happening? What's going on? Why was it great and then all of a sudden it's nothing? Could there be a point? Could there be a point? Could God have a purpose in this? What's He up to? Folks, come on. You guys are bright. What's He up to? Hmm? He wants to see if you'll keep coming. You know what he's asking you when he stops talking to you? You know what he's asking you when he stops consoling you? Do you know what he's asking you when there's no feedback? How much do you want me? How much do you want me? What do I mean to you? And you know what he finds out at this point? Most Christians married him for his money. That's what he finds out. Most Christians married him for his money. They're in it for the warm feelings. They're in it for the answered prayers. They're in it for what they can get from him. They haven't yet really learned to love him. They love what he does for them. Is that the kind of marriage you want? If you were a rich guy, would you want her to marry you? If you were a rich woman, would you want him to marry you for your money? Don't you want to know at some point, haven't you been tempted as a rich person With a spouse that married you when you had a hundred million dollars, haven't you ever been tempted to come home one day and say, Honey, I've got some really bad news? The market failed, I lost everything. Now it's just you and me for the rest of our lives. Rich people do stuff like that. They make their they make their fiance sign a prenuptial agreement that says if something goes wrong and this marriage doesn't work, you're not gonna get dime one. Do you know why they do that? It's not because they're greedy most of the time because they want to know does the person love me for me or is it about my money? Well, the dark times is God's prenuptial agreement. So, He wants you to know how you really feel about Him. He wants you to know what He's really worth and why you ought to seek Him anyway. But it's not just that. Something else is happening inside of you in those dark times. What's happening? What kind of growth What's happening to you? You're learning to trust Him. Folks, trust is not built in the good times. Don't you ever believe that? It's an outright lie. If someone says, Oh, I learned to trust Him because He answered all my prayers. No, you didn't. You learned to be thankful. You learned to rejoice. You might learn to be generous. You might learn a lot of things. You did not learn to trust Him when things were good. You learned to trust Him when things were bad, because trust with with God is one thing. It's expressed by one thing. You're clinging to Him even though you're not getting what you want. That's trust. That's faith. You want faith? Don't say faith is how much I can believe for. I can believe. I can believe for China, Lord. I went through this depression, seven year depression. I told you about it the last time I was here. And about the third year, I was at a Vineyard Pastors Conference on the coast, and the director, Canadian director, was laying out the vision for the next several years. This was before 2000, and the goal was 2000 by 2000. In other words, we're going to plant 2,000 churches by the year 2000. And he was waving the flag, and he was rallying the troops, and he was talking about vision. Do you have vision? Do you have vision? Are you ready for 2000 by 2000? Are you ready to pay the price for what it's going to take? Can you see it in the distance? Do you really want it? What's your vision? What's your vision as a leader? You're leading the church. What's your vision? Do you have a vision? Do you have vision for 2000 by 2000? And I'm in this dark depression. And I'm staring at the carpet. I'm not kidding. This is 11 o'clock in the morning when he's giving this address. And I'm staring at the carpet. And he's saying, What's your vision? What's your vision? And I'm not exaggerating. I swear to God I said this. I'm thinking to myself, what's my vision? As a leader in God's church, what's my vision? What's my vision? I need a vision. What's my vision? And I think about it and I said to myself, I said, God, this is my vision. I want to be a Christian at six o'clock tonight. And when I get to six o'clock tonight, I want to be a Christian when I wake up in the morning and at noon tomorrow I really hope I'm still a Christian. I thought that was pretty pathetic. I thought, I'm pathetic. My vision is I want to still be a Christian by the end of the day. You know what God calls that? Faithfulness. Perseverance. Sometimes you just have to cling to him because there's nothing else. You've thrown all your eggs in one basket. You know, it's the most terrifying thing. I remember the day driving down the road when I, re- I left my law practice. I left all this stuff. I burnt my britches and while I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden it crosses my mind. All my eggs are in one basket. If this doesn't work, this church plant and everything, I'm in big trouble. I've gambled everything on this. Scared me to death. Then all of a sudden, this strange, weird, supernatural little joy rose up inside of me and I thought, this is the place I'm supposed to be. This is the way I'm supposed to live. When times are dark, when He's not talking to you, when His presence is His absence, when the strongest thing you can figure out about Him right now is He's not here. When He is conspicuous... you ever heard, heard, heard the expression? He was conspicuous by His absence. You know, like when you're hanging around with a great person and every time they walk in the room, they ha- somehow fill the room and you, you, be- you become so dependent on their presence that you just wait for the moment the door opens and John Wimber walks in the room and there's this sigh of relief, John Wimber's here, it's going to be okay. We're having a healing service tonight. I'm MCing it. I'm, I'm, the, I'm introducing everything. Oh, God, I hope John shows up on time. Oh, John came in the room. It's going to be okay. We're going to have a healing service tonight. You know, when you're in the presence of greatness, (laughs) it kind of gives you this peace. But when he doesn't show up, he's conspicuous by his absence. God plans a time in your life if you are serious about him. Listen to me. If you're serious about God, and you've ever said something boneheaded like, no matter what, I'm yours. God, I just want to know You better. Oh, I don't care what it costs. Don't ever say I don't care what it costs. He writes this stuff down. <laughs> He's literate. He has a book and he, and he puts stuff in it with a chisel. On, on September the 20th, He said, I don't care what it takes. I want to be like you, idiot. Idiot. He's about to collect. He's going to make you like Him. And it's going to start with a period of darkness. The cross was not a pleasant place for Jesus. The night before was not a pleasant place for Jesus. You do not learn trust and faith In the light, you learn trust and faith in the dark. And you set out in a prayer life to know Him. And He took you seriously, and He says, All right, then, you are going to have to go through a dark time where I am conspicuous by my absence. Do you know what it produces inside of you? A wild, passionate longing. God. I want you so much. The hunger for Him rises up and it becomes overwhelming and it's not pleasant. It gets worse. But if you will keep on coming to Him, if you will keep on entering into that dark place every day, not running from your prayer life, just showing up and saying, I don't care whether you talk to me or not, I don't care whether you manifest 1% of your presence. I don't care whether you answer a prayer or not. I don't care. I'm here for you. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to keep on coming. Because you're all that I have. This is your show. You're in charge, not me. So I'm just going to cling to the memory of you. If that's all it is, I'll cling to the memory of what it was like. But I won't cling in hopelessness. And I won't give in to the temptation that is unique in this circumstance called despair. I'm not going to give in to despair. I'm going to hope with some expectation that this will pass. This season is going to pass. He is going to come to me again sound like anybody Old Testament? Job? Habakkuk? Joseph? That desert experience, when you're finished with it, when you clung to Him, when you stayed in your place of prayer, even when it's empty, the relationship you have with Him has gone so deep that circumstance cannot take Him away from you or you away from Him. It's produced a depth of relationship with Him that now nothing that happens to you can take your faith away. That's worth something, people. It's worth it. And I know this sounds strange, but you will look back and you will say, that was the best time of my life. That was the best time I've ever had with God. Now, you will never want to go back there. You will not say, Oh, that was so educational, Lord. Thank you for that learning experience. Let's do it again. A friend of mine told me a bumper sticker he saw on the roads of California a couple months ago. The bumper sticker said, Oh, no, not another learning experience. You won't want to repeat it but it was worth every minute of it and you cherish what he's produced inside of you. Are you with me? So listen, all that to say one simple little lesson. When your prayer life gets dry, so what? It has a purpose. God is producing something in you. Don't quit. Victory Is not quitting. Success is not quitting. Victory is not being this mighty man of faith. I'm just going to go out and move some mountains today. Victory isn't, look how holy and righteous and wonderful I am. Victory isn't, I'm not doubting. I've never had a doubting moment about God in all of this. I'm just so sure. You're not sure. You're scared. Doubt is a part of your life now. You live with it daily but you will not give in to it. You will not. You keep on coming to Him. At the tail end of seven years of depression, I'm in a big renewal meeting. I think I told you about this, but I'm going to tell it again because it suits the point. And I go forward because there's a call for broken people. You know, Yes, I'm a broken person. So I'm up there. Okay, God, do something. And I'm standing there and the Spirit's moving and people are being touched all over the place and I'm not being touched. I'm just in pain like I always am. And I'm praying to the Lord and I said, how can you stand this? He said, "How how can you stand to have me as a leader in your church? I'm pathetic. I'm in worse shape spiritually than every single person in our church. You know it and I know it. I'm not qualified for ministry. Why do you let me keep going? Why can't I quit and drive a cab or something? I'm having this conversation with the Lord. My eyes are closed. I'm in the will-receive position having this horrible conversation with God. And I just said to him, I'm not qualified for ministry. Let me quit. And this big guy I've never seen before comes up behind me. My eyes are closed. And he leans over my right ear and he says, I have a message from the Lord for you. And I just go like this. And he goes, the Lord says you're not disqualified for ministry. And then he turns around and walks away. And I was mad. I said, Lord, that's what you say. I said, that's your position that I'm not disqualified for ministry. I said, oh, yeah? I had this, oh, yeah? I said, oh, yeah? What qualifies me for ministry? Like, this better be good. Because there isn't anything. At this point, I'm living for Monday night football. I was. Those guys, Dan Deerdorf and Al Michaels, they were my friends. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You don't get it. It's the truth. I lived from Monday night football to Monday night football because it was the only three hours in my life where I escaped from the pain. They were my friends. They were a safe place to hide. The rest of my life was Chaos and pain. That's not... Is that who you want for your pastor? Me neither. So I'm saying to the Lord, what qualifies me for ministry? You know what He says to me? You always know where to come back to for help. That's it? That's my qualification? Is that I crawl here to you and beg? And want to die? That's it? And he says, yeah, that's it. And he says to me, soon I will come to you with raw power. And I said, so what? And I started thinking about what power would be like if it actually flowed through me. And I thought, gee, maybe that would heal me of some of this stuff. And I said, well, I don't care what you do or how you do it, but I would give anything not to feel this way anymore. It's been seven years. And he said, soon I will do it. And I said, I doubt it. I mean, I said, that. I said, I doubt it. Soon to use a thousand years. And he said, no, I'll do it soon. Three weeks later, I'm in Toronto. And some little 65-year-old gray-haired lady puts a finger in the center of each palm and starts to pray. And this electricity just shoots through my body. And I'm bouncing up and down for 15 minutes like a fool. And, and three-quarters of the way through it, this thought goes, hmm, this is raw power. Yeah. Then it ends... And I open my eyes. I haven't felt anything. And then I realize, I haven't felt anything. I don't hurt inside. I don't hurt inside. This emotional pain that's been with me for seven years and has always intensified in the presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? It always gets worse in the presence of God. It's gone. It's gone. That was almost 12 years ago. haven't had that pain since not once. Here's the point. What qualified me? Because you always know where to come to for help. And in that whole period of seven years, the one thing I didn't stop doing was my prayer life. Keep coming to Him. Keep coming to Him. Keep coming to Him every day. And it doesn't matter whether He talks or not. And it doesn't matter whether I feel good or not. And it doesn't matter that He's neon on the wall. I'm here for him, and I'm just coming, and it's the only thing, it's the only lifeline I have, so I'm just clinging by my fingernails. That's what got me through. And it produces a level of trust and faith that is absolutely wonderful. Nothing in my life can hurt me like that again. Nothing. I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid of pain, but I'm not afraid to die. That's the point of the dry times and the dark times, okay? That's the point. It is going to happen. It may not be a 7-year depression. You're not as messed up as I am, okay? You don't have as many issues from the past. But if you pursue God in an intimate prayer life, you are going to enter into a time of darkness at some point in that prayer life where he is conspicuous by his absence. And the one temptate, two temptations, despair and quitting don't give in to despair and don't quit just keep coming and it'll break through and it'll be good again and your relationship will be deeper than it's ever been before okay any questions I'm serious any questions about this Define despair. well despair is is the absence of hope when you have no hope, when you can't imagine a good future, when you can't imagine that the suffering you're in could end, or that there's freedom or deliverance for you, and you've come to the point where you can't, you have no hope, you have no belief in a good future, and you really would rather die, that's despair. You just, you just really want to die. You can't see anything good your whole outlook becomes completely pessimistic and you're basically waiting to die. That's that's a spirit. That's despair. And it's the complete absence of hope. When God begins to restore a person's life, the first thing that comes back is hope. The light at the end of the tunnel, you begin to think it might be possible things could change. I don't think they will. But it might. Maybe it could get better. Hope begins to dawn. Out of hope comes faith. It's just a seed. I mean, it's it's just barely there, but you start to believe. God can change this. He still loves me, and I'm not going to quit. And He's going to come. Somehow, He's going to find a way through this. That's faith beginning. And then as circumstances start to change, the reality of it is becoming real for you. And then the faith and the hope increase, and it's like a snowball. They start to pick up momentum, and after a while you come back to where you're, you're not in despair anymore. You're in faith. You're believing. It isn't even hope. You're beyond hoping. You're in faith. You're believing for it, and, and your circumstances are starting to change. If that makes any sense. Any other questions? About this? You, go, you fall asleep. Yeah. So fall asleep. And when you wake up, but remind yourself of this, when you wake up, you're waking up with God. When you're waking up, you're waking up with Him because you went to sleep with Him. And, uh, and maybe you needed that rest. Now, if that's your prayer life every day for three or four years, go to bed earlier at night. <laughs> you're cheating. If you get up and you go, Oh, Lord, I love you so much. It's so good to be here. And an hour later, you go. oh, I'm refreshed. Okay, you weren't with him really. I mean, if you do that every day, you're cheating. But if you're really thrashed in your prayer and you need to go to sleep, go to sleep with him. But remember, when you the minute you wake up, you're waking up in his arms. You're waking up with him. Remember, was it a which was Elijah, or Elisha? I always get those guys mixed up. The prophets of Baal, and he runs across the desert, and he's completely. You see, there, there's a good picture of despair. There's a good picture of a burnout. That is burnout, where ministry has done you in, spiritual warfare and everything has done you in. He, this great man of faith that brought down 400 prophets of Baal, and, and, and he's, he's run away and he's scared and he wants to die. He's so depressed. What does the Lord say? You little worm. People like you make me sick. You've got no faith at all. What does the Lord say? You need to pray more. If you'd have prayed more, if you'd have spent this time praying, you be, what does God say? Eat, drink, go to sleep. 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 See, he understands his needs. And after three days of sleeping and eating and everything else, God says, okay, get up. Now we're going to go kick some butt. Now that you're better. You see, there's a place for rest. There's a place for physical rest. So, so you know, go to sleep and wake up with the Lord. What about another question? These are good questions. These are practical questions. Ask some more practical questions about having a prayer time. Let's see where it leads us, okay? Problems in prayer. What are some more? Oh, come on, guys. Okay. you're Yeah, that's most people's first thing. You, you, you sit down to be still. You gather yourself. You And we're going to talk about this tomorrow night, the whole technique of it. We're going to get technique-ish. And you sit down and you get comfortable and you start to still your body and then you shut up your mouth. And then what do you do? You can't bring peace to your mind because your brain is just... And and you know, the worst of it is, as soon as you try to do this, your executive assistant, the devil, brings out your daily reminder and shows you all your appointments, everything else. And now it's really bad. Because you came to be with the Lord and now you're working for Him and the devil's helping you remember everything you have to do today. And it's just, oh, I wish I hadn't stopped to pray. I'm more worried than if I'd just gone out and started working. (laughs) Right? Okay, here's what you do. Don't fight with those thoughts. If you begin to fight with those thoughts, they always become stronger than you are. Here's what I was taught to do by that little old sister, and it worked. Acknowledge the thought, admit whatever truth is there, and turn it over to God with this phrase. I always do it this way. Up pops my daily thing, the worries of the day, the crises or whatever, and instead of fighting with it, I say, that's true. That's really important, but not right now. God, remind me of this later. But it's not important now. I'm not here for that. I'm here for him. So I acknowledge the thought and I take it to Jesus and say, you work with this, but this is not my problem right now. I'm giving this to you. And then you'll enter into a little more peace for about a minute. I'm being realistic. I'm not making a joke. For about a minute, 30 seconds, you're back in a state of peace and another thought comes up. And you say again, that's important. That's true. There's a problem there. That's not my problem right now. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to deal with that. I'm here to be with Jesus. I'm here with you, Lord. Take the thought. It's yours. Turning it over to Him, and you'll be in there for another 30 seconds of peace, and then your mind will wander to something else. See, you don't measure a successful prayer time by how few distractions you are. You have. You measure a successful prayer time by how many times you came back to Him. Do you understand? It's not that you were able to sit for 60 minutes and not have a worldly thought. The success of a prayer time with him is spent in how quickly you realize you got lost and turn on and say, I want to be lost, I'm coming back to you. Every time you return your attention to him, you're getting better at putting your attention on him. Every time you return your attention to him, you're, you're training your mind to return to God after each task. I once asked my father, we were arguing about this, what does it mean when Paul says pray continually? I always thought this impossible. You can't pray continually when when you're when you're focusing on an engineering problem at work or something, and you've got a crisis, and all the wheels are turning, and you're trying to you're doing math. Believe me, you better be focused when you're doing math. You can't be half of you is doing math and half of you is praying for Africa. It just doesn't work out very well. So how do you pray continually? My father said this: after you've done the task at hand, where does your mind go? Where does it return to? Does it go off into fantasy about fishing or hunting or football or movies or or something truly destructive? Or does it return to its resting place? Is your default position God? Have you pressed the little button on the window where your default position is, I'd return to God. This kind of prayer focuses you and trains you to have God as your default position. So, when you're not thinking about something else, you just go back to relationship with Him. In conversation, you start talking to Him about stuff again. How successfully you do prayer is how often you're able to just stop and say, That's not important right now. I'm going back to God. And the more you do that, the more it becomes natural to you to do that, the more you fall into a disposition of prayer rather than struggle into it. And you find it becomes graceful. Do you understand? It's really training. It's not like, this isn't like super weird spiritual. This is just your mind becomes, this is taking every thought captive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that Paul's talking about. This is having a little guy in your head that watches your thoughts and says, bad one, dumb place to go, let's go back to God. And you can develop that. And prayer, in this kind of prayer I'm talking about, is the way you develop that. So it's training yourself. And you will become more and more successful at it until after a year or so when you sit down to pray and you just begin to be still you fall into his arms really fast. It comes really quite quickly. Because you've trained yourself to do it. I've stilled and quieted my soul within me like a weaned child in its mother's breast. You've trained yourself. The beginning is super hard. The payoff is great. And I've someone the other day this is just a side thing but I want you to get, I want you to think about this because it's very cool I was prophesying over a bunch of pastors in San Diego and somebody said how does he do that? and my pastor said well he spends an hour with God every morning learning to listen and be still and I thought I don't want to take credit for that because that's a special thing and it has nothing to do with ministry but then I got to thinking about it afterwards and I thought gee whiz maybe that's why the prophetic gift is what it is because I, I I trained to listen for so many years, trained to be still, trained to hear the voice of God. It's not that hard to hear, when you train towards it. It's not he's not that hard to hear. And you know, and I realize when I go to prophesy over people in a meeting like this. Now naturally, without thinking about it, people start coming up. The first thing I do is I still myself inside. I go to that still place and I just wait. And sometimes I'll say to people. Uh, i got a prophetic word for you. I really sense it's coming, but I I need to wait, okay? Do you mind if I just wait for a few minutes? And, of course, they always say yes because they want the, the word. So they're at peace, and I just close my eyes, and I just rest, and I go to that place with him. It's the default position. And once I'm there, it gets really easy to pick stuff up. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that. I get that. Out it comes. Are you with me? A lot of ministry comes from that place. Especially the Spirit-flowing ministry, the the, the revelatory ones like words of knowledge and prophecy. And I think miracles and stuff comes from that place. Everything. Jesus said, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing. These words that you're accusing me of, these miracles that I'm doing that you're accusing me of, they're of the Father. I only do what He says. I only do what He sees. Well, how did He see it and hear it? He had a prayer life. He spent every morning. And and sometimes during the middle of the day, He stopped. He also stopped and reflected at night he was in communion with his Father in a prayer life. Now, if Jesus needed to do that to function as a Christian, and I'm not making a joke, if he, if he the, the perfect, sinless, divine Son of God had to have a prayer life to function as a person, oh boy, oh boy, do we need one. Okay? What other questions? This is really good. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll hear from God more often in our quiet time than any other part of the day. And the more we do that, the better we become at hearing him in the rest of the day. We're training our ears. And you know, it is a still a small voice. He won't compete with the world. He doesn't compete with noise. He doesn't compete with TV. He won't compete with the radio. He won't compete with sports. He won't compete. He won't lower himself to compete with the things we love. So he waits until we're ready to let go of some things to be still and quiet and then he'll talk to us. What else? Yeah. Well, when I, when I started with this nun, I thought she was going to let me off the hook. She was talking about having a prayer life and she said, okay, you want this? I'll train you. I said, oh, thank you. What are we going to do first? She said, well, you're going to spend an hour in prayer every day. I said, you got to be kidding. How long? She said, an hour. And she was a very graceful woman, full of God's love. So I, I thought I could get away with it. I said, well, you know, I can, I can do 15 minutes. She said, no. I said, I can do a half an hour. No. 40 minutes? No, she said, you do an hour. If you're going to do this, you're going to do an hour. She wouldn't bend. It was an hour. And so I started an hour, and it dang near killed me. Um, if we were all really serious about having a relationship with God if everyone in this room really cared sorry to insult you but most of you don't care but if you all really cared I'd say yeah an hour just do it I don't care how much it hurts do it and it would be fruitful because you'd come up against every nasty thing in yourself that stood in the way of spending an hour with God if you try to spend an hour with God that's why it's fruitful But because a lot of you don't care very much and you're going to dabble and fool around with this, then could you give it a half an hour? Could you at least try for that and see what happens? And that will be fruitful. I don't know why the hour... You know, it is biblical, this hour of prayer thing. And everyone that ever does it talks about an hour, and I don't know why. You really... You really come to the end of your rope after an hour of trying to be stiff. (laughs) Boy, you realize if anything good happens in this 60 minutes, it is not related to me. It's not. Another question. i mean, sorry to insult you, but I really mean that. If you're serious about the Lord, there's, there's 24 of them in a day. There's 16 of them in your waking time. Most of them is... Eight of them to 10 of them is work. And after that, most of it is waste. Shouldn't he get one-sixteenth of our time in a concentrated effort. Shouldn't he? Isn't he worth that? Given the fruit? Oh, the Muslims, the Muslims, you know, they're earning their way to heaven, so they pray their brains out. And why is it the fastest-growing religion? And why are they willing to die for what they believe and we can't get up the courage to fight them? What else? Any other questions? Okay. She said, This is a really good question. This is a really good question. Um, she's an intercessor and she's really into praying for people and situations, being an intercessor. Where's the balance between that and just trusting God? Okay, I want to answer this in a kind of an oblique way. When you're doing the kind of prayer that I'm talking about, don't ever intercede. You're, you're going to junk up your prayers. This is the way it was put to me. Don't do Bible study. Don't do intercession. Don't do petition. Don't do anything. That's turning it into what it isn't. You're there to be with God. You're there for a relationship with God. You can do your intercession later. Now it's going to cost you Two hours. Well, it is. This isn't a chance to do Bible study. You know what happens as soon as you start to do Bible study when you're trying to just be with Him? The left side of your brain engages. It turns into an intellectual puzzle. It stimulates the heck out of you. You really enjoy it. It's really fun. You spent time interacting with His Word, but you weren't interacting with Him. I know some Baptists will freak out about saying that, but study of the Word is not the same as relationship with Him. It's study of the Word. You've got to do that. Find another time. Do it in the car. Do your intercession in the car. Do your intercession on a walk. Do your intercession where you're doing the laundry. Do your intercession after lunch. But don't junk up your relational time with God by somehow turning it into work. It's not work. It's a relationship. Really. Really yeah it's emotional it's it's warm it's loving it's affectionate it's a back and forth communion it's not to get a job done the minute it turns into that it's not this kind of prayer anymore what else yeah are the questions about? Are they about you and him and your relationship or are they about the rest of your life? Do you understand what I'm saying? About circumstances that you're coping with? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. good question so you break through to a sense of his presence and he's really there and then you ask him a question like when is revival going to come why aren't we seeing what we need in the church, why aren't people getting healed sometimes he answers that question but sometimes asking that question takes you away from your relationship with him into problem solving. Sometimes it's of his spirit that he's leading you to that place. And sometimes going there is a distraction. I wish I could answer this better. Here's the point. Here's the focal point of this kind of prayer. This, The purpose of this kind of prayer is only one thing. Your relationship with God. And the quality of that relationship with God is love. You with me? It's about loving Him and being loved by Him. It's a spirit-to-spirit, soul-to-soul, face-to-face relationship of love and intimacy. So if the big questions interfere with that and take you away from that purpose, and you find that as soon as you ask that question, why isn't there revival in the church, and the answer came back, nobody's praying, and you spent the next half an hour in intercession for a revival in the church, Maybe you stepped away from what you were there for with Him. But, maybe not. But if it keeps on turning into that kind of prayer, you missed it. Are you with me? See, the devil will do anything to stop you from receiving the Father's love. Even so far as to give you great things to pray about. Because it will take you away from receiving the Father's love. And we so we so we have so much trouble believing that God actually wants to love me right now that when we come to be with Him and He starts to love us, we usually find a way to squirm out of it. We're like the active little kid that doesn't want to cuddle because we don't think we deserve it or something, and so we squirm out of Daddy's arms. And oftentimes the, the devil, you know, your executive assistant, the devil gives you all the things you've got to do that day, and your mind goes on to them. And I have to say... I'm not here for that right now. I'm here to let God love me. Sounds so selfish, you know. I'm just here to let God love me. But every time He begins to love me, it evokes love inside of me, and I pour it back at Him, and we're having love. We're living love together, which was the purpose of this prayer time. You see? So anything that keeps on taking you away from that face-to-face intimate love with God wasn't the purpose of that time. Now, it might be a good thing. It might be something you need to pray for later in the day. Then make a note. Take a little book and put down Need to Pray for Revival in the Church. If you do that, you're only distracted for the time it takes to write that. Then set it aside. Here's the test to find out if that was really God leading you. Later in the day, you open that to go back. If there's a Spirit to pray, if the Spirit's there in power to pray for revival in the church, that was Him who reminded you of it in your prayer time. But he's, he's not worried that it took two hours to get to that prayer. You follow what I'm saying? He'll be there to anoint the prayer for revival in the church two hours later when after lunch you look at it and say, what do I need to intercede for today? But if you turn your devotional time into praying for the church, you didn't have a devotional time. You need to carve out and protect this relationship. It's no different than a husband and a wife who schedule a date night. Right? You know how you do it. You schedule a date night. What's the most important thing you can do at the beginning of date night? Shut off your cell phone. Shut off your cell phone. If you've got your cell phone on and you're going out for the date with the wife, you're supposed to be focusing on how wonderful it is. Fellas, if you're doing it right, you're thinking about sex at the end of the night. You're focusing on your wife. You're, 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 you're going to be passionate about this woman. You're going to woo her. You're coming after her. You're letting her know how much you love her. You're making this romantic. It's about the two of you, it's a date. If you're starting to drive away to go out to dinner someplace nice, and the cell phone calls, and it's somebody from the church because there's some urgency, and gee, you better go do ministry right now. The rest of the night, you're going to be thinking about that urgency. You're not with her anymore. How does she feel? Not tonight, my man. You blew it, you had your chance. Well, okay, I'm making a joke, but it's the truth. Well, it's it the same way with romance with God. We're talking about romance with God. Don't turn your, your romance with God into a job description. You can do that later. This is your date night. It only lasts a little bit of the day. He deserves this. He's worth this. It's not work. It's not about those other forms of prayer. It's not petition. It's not intercession. It's not spiritual warfare. It's devotional. It's love. It's intimacy. It's just being together. Any other questions? This is very fruitful. Um. Is there any way before you go to sleep you can spend a half an hour being still?
1: Yeah. that's And I guess that's the answer I want to hear because, you know, as I was asking and I was thinking, you know, I came home, but I didn't need to go to bed. But I came here and it you know, so... And you're surviving. Two hours, yeah. And you're
0: still awake. It doesn't have to, it's better if it is a morning thing for this simple reason. The way you start is often the way you end. The quality of your beginning often determines the quality of your ending. If you can go to bed half an hour earlier and get up half an hour earlier, find a qu- still, quiet place before the busyness of the day has infected you, before you're all geared up with adrenaline and rushing through your day, it's hard to put the brakes on. It's much easier to start with this time at the beginning. So if you can get up a half hour earlier, get in the car, take your coffee, halfway to work, pull over someplace quiet, spend half an hour with him with your coffee in the car, have your quiet time there, then start up the car and drive the rest of the way to work. Your day will go better. Your work will go way better. The rest of your day will go better too. And when you come home at the end of the day, sit down, eat, decompress, you know how you need about a half an hour to get the day out of your system? Do the decompression, have the dinner, and then say, Honey, give me 15 minutes, go someplace alone into the bathroom, lock the door into the bedroom, close the door, tell the kids I want to be alone. Spend 15 or 20 minutes just thinking about the day and reflecting it with God, getting in touch with Him again, then do what you're going to do and go to bed. Try that, and that will change your life. This is the last one and we're going to start prophecy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, you will. Yeah, you will. The cost for you will be that you're now going to pray an hour and a half to two hours a day instead of one. But here's what's going to happen. If you add this devotional hour or half hour to your day and you do it before you do the intercession, you're going to start believing your own prophecies for yourself and you're going to start accepting how he really feels about you. You're going to start experiencing his love, which is going to make the rest of your day wonderful. And your intercession will have twice to three times as much power because it's coming out of a position of faith in an incredibly loving God that you are experiencing yourself. It'll supercharge your intercession. It's worth it. Well, could you spend the first half an hour with Him receiving His love and letting Him love you? and making an effort to believe the wonderful things he keeps telling you about you? And every time the devil says, oh, no, that can't be true, you're making that up, just say, well, I believe it for everybody else I tell. Why can't I believe it for me when he tells me something good? Yes, Lord, I believe that. I accept that. You're wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for loving me like this. You are the best. Okay? Okay. All those people that never received a word, why don't you come up and sit here in the front row?